0: Welcome to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit SharonChurch.com. We hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter one. Hey, Carrie, I'm gonna mess you up. I'm gonna move uh, the announcements and generosity to the end. Thank you, Carrie. Everybody give Carrie a hand. Running slides today. Yeah, Carrie! Love our volunteers. Thank you all for serving. So John chapter 1, we're going to continue our epiphany series this morning. Uh, Greg last week did an amazing job teaching through the temptation of Jesus. So in this series, epiphany, uh, epiphany means the revealing or manifestation. And so we're studying over the next, I don't know how long yet, we're going to keep studying Jesus through the book of John, that Jesus has been revealed as the Son of God. He is who he said he is. And that's what we all need. We all need an epiphany, a revelation of Jesus in in our lives. And so we're going to study that through the book of John. We'll we'll finish up John chapter 1 today, which only took us four weeks, so that's a good sign for things to come. But we'll be in John chapter 1 um, uh, this morning. We said this, that uh, we want this year, and hopefully for the rest of our existence as a church and as a people... Uh, to be a people known for the verse 2 Peter 3:18 we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that's the mission of a christian is this that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now in the room this morning there are some of us who need to grow a bit more in the grace of Jesus we need to speak the language of Jesus grace to our hearts and to the hearts of those around us and some of us we need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ we just we don't, we, we're worshiping and zealous about something that we don't even know. And so we need to grow in that knowledge. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks or months or however long uh, it takes us. But we're going to study primarily out of the book of John. Uh, John was an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12. Um, John was the one who laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, if you've seen that painting. But he even tells us he laid his head on the chest of Jesus. One commentator would say that in the book of John, we hear from a man who laid his head on the chest of Jesus and heard the very heartbeat of God. It's a powerful statement. So there's four gospels in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called synoptic gospels. They have the same optics. They have the same perspective. And John exists in a category a bit more by itself that he is the beloved disciple, and so he he writes from that perspective. At the end of his book, he tells us why he wrote the book of John. He said, a lot of things happened that I don't have space to write about, but the things I chose, the way that I wrote, is so that you might believe, John chapter 20, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. That's what we all need. It's what the church exists to do. It's why we exist and why we worship, that we might worship the one true God in the person of of Jesus. So we're going to study this morning the last part of John chapter 1. And so you know just ahead of time, I'm going to walk through this passage three different times. So get comfortable. We're going to go through it three different times. It's like 16 verses, 17 verses. And I want to highlight different things each time. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, John tells us that he is the word. He was there at the beginning. He created. All things have been, cre- been created through him, and there's nothing that has been created that was not created through Jesus. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene some Christmas morning in Bethlehem. He's been there from the beginning of time, which means he has all the authority of God. He has the power to heal, the power to forgive sins. This is who he is, and he is the light of the world, and their darkness cannot overcome his light of the world. Then we met John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, a crazy dude, lives in the wilderness, covered in camel's hair, eats locusts and honey. Um, that's where he lives. He's, an, he's a bit of an outcast. That's, that's what he does. But he has a mission to declare that the Messiah has come. That's what he exists to do. And so then we saw last week that um, after Jesus was baptized by camel hair, John, Jesus then goes into the wilderness. He's led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And again, Greg did a great job unpacking that from Matthew chapter four. Uh, Jesus returns. John the Baptist has the conversation. We talked about this um, with the Levites and the priests, the Pharisees had sent him saying, what are you doing baptizing? Who are you? He's like, well, I know who I'm not. And then all of that happened. And so what we're going to pick up now is the day after that conversation. Where John the Baptist had said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is going to begin assembling his team. He's going to start calling the disciples to himself by name. He's going to start calling these 12. We're going to meet five or six of them just this morning. He ends up with 12 of of disciples. But what we're going to see throughout this passage is that while the calling of God, the mission is universal, the way that he calls each of us is a bit unique. There's a uniqueness to the way that he captivates our hearts and and our attention. For me, God always captivates my heart through my mind first or predominantly. If there are things about God that blow my mind, I am in emotionally. Like I am, I'm in at that point. Then there are some of us who are just, we're captivated by a song that stirs our affections and stirs our emotions and the mind then begins to follow or however it is. It was illustrated for me this past week. Um, We have three kids uh, Meredith and I, and Meredith just has uh, um, just a gift of like the way she sees the world and sees spaces to make them work for us and our family and our home. Um, I am, um, I need things to be organized. Like I need things. I don't. I hate clutter. I don't like when things are cluttered, whether that's spatially or mentally or. Whatever I just—it's I, hard for me uh, to be present in those places because I'm so distracted by what's happening. If a picture is crooked in an office or in your house, I might fix it first and then we can have a conversation. But that's—it's that's hard for me. I, I need things to be organized. And we have a laundry room that um, our friends and family use as the entrance to our house. I don't know what your laundry room is like, but ours is not good enough for people to walk through. Um, I don't know what your smells like, but we have. Boys, and so there, we needed to clean that up and, and organize and structure it. And anybody else, just you want things organized, you need things to be. You are my people. We can we can hang out. Um, and then, um, but then we've got a four year old little girl who apparently does not same share the same conviction as I do um, of organization. So literally, uh, the same day that we are um, remodeling, picking up shelves, painting, <laughs> we Meredith is doing all those things. Um, <laughs> uh, Landry, our four-year-old, down the hallway, so we are preparing to organize, right? I want you to get understand, understand what's happening. Landry is in her room taking all but seven things out of her closet, off of hangers, on hangers, and just making a pile in her room. Then she finds backpacks and starts stuffing backpacks full of clothes. It doesn't just stop with clothes because she also loves Barbies. And what I'm learning is that boys and girls play differently, and girls toys all have a ton of minuscule little things that you can never find when you need them but they are everywhere in our house. And so now she has the Barbies down and shoes and clothes and toys everywhere. There's dolls out, she has a kitchen and I mean everything is on her floor. We are trying to organize and she is doing the opposite of organizing in her room. And it's fun for her. Like I walk in and I start sweating, like I can't get words out. I don't, I can't process what's happening in the world. And I'm like, when she's happy as can be, just happy as can be, picking things up off of the ground, throwing other things on the ground. I'm like, there's a place for that. Go somewhere. So I said, okay, I'm going to be, I'm cool. Like I can, I know how this works. I've been a dad for a while. So I get down on my my knees like, hey girl, we got to clean up before bedtime because you're going to, you have to go to bed. And, um, I can't fall asleep if your room is like this. So, I also have to go to bed. So, let's get this cleaned up. And so, I get the box that her hair bows are in because she's a girl and we're in the South and she wears bows. And I say, Hey, put all your hair bows in this box. To which she responds by picking up bows and placing them in a toy blender um, while she's holding it. She's like, I'm going to make a bow slurpee. I'm like, no, I don't, we're not playing, we are organizing. So then I said, no, no, put the bows in the box. And so then she puts the bow blender into the box. I'm like, no, that's not, you have it. what are we doing? Why can't you figure out what we are doing? You're a smart girl. This is awful. Um, I say things in my head that I can't say to a four-year-old. And so then there's this whole process and... So I'm like, okay, well, at least it's just your room, and so we get that figured out, and I walk in the living room, I'm like, your room has vomited out in our living room. How did your stuff get from there to here? I'm like, surely it didn't get into our bedroom, and I go into our bedroom, and I don't know. Like I don't, She doesn't have that many toys, and they're everywhere. So here's what I realized, that God, you're gonna have to get to her heart in a way that I don't know how. Like, I, I don't know how. I don't know how to convince her sloppy, little four-year-old girl brain that you love her. I don't know. Because right now, I'm not sure that I do, and I don't know how to convince her that you're okay with all of this, because there's no way in the Bible you are okay with this. Uh, but what I'm learning, and those of you who have kids, you understand that the way you have to deal with your children is different depending on how they are and how they're wired. And so Jesus, the way that he's going to call disciples is unique in that way. I want to just bring that to light, and I can't keep telling stories. We're going to run out of time. John chapter 1. Uh, let's go to verse 35. Jesus um, He's going to begin a shift a bit in his ministry where he's going to start to shake the foundation of the elite religious leaders of the day. Like he's not going to overtly do it, but he's going to start to get underneath some stuff in a way that really drives them crazy. You're going to see it happen here with people. Verse 35, the next day, so after the confrontation John the Baptist has, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, Uh, John the Baptist has disciples. Disciples aren't Relegated just to following Jesus. A disciple is someone who's a follower or a learner. John the Baptizer has developed a following. He's got learners and disciples who follow him. Here's the truth for each and every one of us today the question is not whether or not we are being discipled, it's by whom are we being discipled. We are disciples, we are prone to follow and to learn. The question is, who are you following? The message of the New Testament is that Jesus is the only one worthy of our following. But we've all been discipled, whether it be by um, news media or social media or influencers or um, friends at school or teachers or coaches. We're all being discipled. So open your mind to the fact that someone is leading you somewhere. John the Baptist has disciples. He's standing with two of them. Verse 36 And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So if you're a nerd like this, I'm going to give you a few things. When you read through this passage, pay attention to the words like looked and saw and seek and behold. They're everywhere in these 16 or 17 verses. Secondly, if you have time this week, read back through John chapter 1. You will find 10 different names for Jesus. It's how John's going to make clear who Jesus is. That's off topic. So back in. And he looked and as at Jesus and as he walked by he said behold the lamb of god seems like john is like a one of the CDs from our CDs from the 90s just stuck on repeat behold the lamb of god behold the lamb of god behold the lamb of god behold this is his sermon and he says behold the lamb of god so just real quick teaching point jesus is always walking by uh, he's always present And the role of John the Baptist, the role of a pastor, the role of an evangelist is to make us aware of Jesus walking by. So I don't know where you find yourself in your life, what circumstances you're walking in. This may be comfort to you. It might hurt your heart, but Jesus is walking there too. John the baptizer says, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So they leave one, leader, and they begin to follow another. I want you to notice that John the Baptist is not frustrated. He's not angry. He doesn't have a meeting with them. Say, hey, what, what, what did I do wrong? What can I do better? And then they said, well, we just weren't getting fed by you anymore, so we need somebody else. Like, none of that happens. John the Baptizer understands my job is to point people to Jesus. If they're going to follow Jesus. I'm all for it. And so he lets them. They follow Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned And saw them following, and said to them, "What are you seeking?" And they said to him, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Where are you staying? Like uh, they're not asking, "Hey, what's your house look like? I want to see what your house looks like." Uh, This is this is important. What's happening? I told you, Jesus is trying to come under some Jewish elite thinking religiously at this point. So, in this culture, uh, most, if not every, Jewish boy would have been. Taken to a Jewish school, a school to learn a Hebrew language and to learn the Hebrew scriptures. By the age of thirteen, every good Jewish boy would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Not their names in order, memorize them. Memorize the words of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorize them. You've thirteen-year-old boys. How's that? How's that going to go um, for them? But this is what this is the culture so much so that at the age of of 13, we call it the age of accountability, a rabbi, so they would study under a rabbi, and the rabbi would have the option, if he thought that boy or a group of boys had risen to prove themselves worthy of religious study, worthy of becoming a rabbi, he would have a ceremony and a moment with them, and he would say these words to them, follow me. And then from that point, the boy had to make a decision uh, but they would most likely follow that rabbi. Now, should a boy reach the age of thirteen and prove himself unworthy of continuing in religious education, the rabbi would instruct him to go back to the work of his father. So they would go back to being fishermen. They would go back to being woodworkers. They would go back to being um, working with masonry. This is they would go back to the work of their father and perpetuate that. Then they would have kids. They would put their boys in Jewish school and hope at some point in their lineage. One child would be accepted and good enough to continue in tradition. So they're looking, uh, a rabbi is elevated in their society. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, notice the people that he calls. He's not going to Hebrew schools to find boys to follow him. He's calling men to follow him. Men who had not been studying uh, the Hebrew language and Hebrew studies, men who had been declared not good enough, and they've gone back to their father's trade. In fact, Jesus himself is working in the same line of work that his earthly father Joseph had worked in, which tells us all we need to know about how the the religious elite perceived Jesus. And so when Jesus begins calling disciples, he's really messing with the system that's in place. So they turn and they call him rabbi, which means teacher. And they say, where are you staying? We we want to follow. I want to know more about you. We want to spend time with you. Where are you staying? And notice what Jesus says in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Doesn't give them an address. uh, Doesn't tell them just to to Google it. uh, Doesn't pull it up on their phone. Doesn't tell them how far away it is. Doesn't even give them a city or a region. He just responds come and you will see. They came and saw where he was staying and he stayed with them that day for it was about the 10th hour. The 10th hour would be 4 uh, p.m., four o'clock in the evening. So getting about to be sunset too far to walk back home. So again, quick teaching point here. Jesus invites more than he instructs. The method of Jesus' ministry would be invitation after invitation after invitation after invitation to those who would want to follow. He did not come like other rabbis who would have been instructing first for 13 years and then inviting. Jesus invites before he instructs. So for those of you who have thought you would follow Jesus to get instructions of how to live your life, or instructions for a a successful business, or instructions for a good marriage, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the first move of Jesus is always come and see. It's an invitation. Follow me. Follow me. And we've gotten it wrong in churches for a long time, instructing before inviting. It's an invitation to immerse yourself in. He invites before he invites. Instructs. One of the two who heard uh, John the baptizer speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Poor Andrew. He's not even just Andrew. He's always Simon Peter's brother. Like he can't just exist on his own. But he's Andrew. Now, um, scholars would tell you, most of them would tell you that the other disciple was John the Apostle who wrote this book. John never refers to himself his name um, by name, and so they, in the research, found that this was probably him. He was the second disciple standing he and Andrew would have been standing by John the Baptist. So Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41. So Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, the Anointed One, which means Christ. He brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. So again, we're not even a chapter into the book of John, and we've met three different Johns. Do you see how confusing Scripture can be? I feel like, again... I just think God could have been a bit more creative and given up to us different names for simplicity's sake. So you've got John the Apostle who wrote the book, John the Baptizer, and now a man named John who is the father of Peter and Andrew. Some of your translations say Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar, that prefix means son of. Jonah would have been another way to say the name John, son of John. You are Simon, the son of John. Now you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Just to make it more confusing, Peter's gonna have three names. Um, he's going to be, it's, it's Simon, a.k.a. Peter, a.k.a. Cephas. This is who he is. Three different names. So in scripture, again, it's going to be confusing. They're all referring to Peter. But look at verse 44. But Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Okay, so now you're seeing how these are all connected, right? John and Andrew speaking to Jesus. Andrew's brother is Simon Peter. We're going to learn later that John's brother is James, but this is what we found here. They're from Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida is in Galilee on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, up north of the Jordan River, up to the Sea of Galilee. And Bethsaida means house of fish. So I thought my laundry room smelled bad. I can't even imagine a house of fish. Uh, But house of fish, this is a fishing town. These are fishing people. This is who they are. 45. Philip found Nathanael. You see how this is trickling down. Philip now found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus, uh, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's an old Jewish saying that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We talked about Nazareth during our Advent series. Nazareth is on the way in from the north on the way into Jerusalem. Opposing armies coming to fight uh, Israel would cross through Nazareth. They needed a good uh, morale booster, and they'd defeat Nazareth on their way in and their way back out. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And Philip can only respond, come and see. Well, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, probably with Philip, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, well, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Well, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, which is amen, amen. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We're going to learn throughout this is that those who truly follow Jesus will truly have their eyes open. If you're truly following Jesus, he will begin to take scales off of your eyes that you will see the world differently than you saw it before. And here, for those of us who have followed Jesus for a number of years, here's how you know you've stopped following Jesus. When you're seeing the world, how everyone else sees the world. When you're seeing the world, how your social media thread is seeing the world. When you are seeing the world, how the newscasters say to see the world. When you're seeing the world, uh, the way a celebrity or athlete sees the world. You, we have drifted from following, because when we're truly following, our eyes will be opened to see the world differently. Okay? All right. One time. Let's go back up at the top, verse 35. We're gonna come back through it again. We're gonna meet some characters. Verse 35, the next day, after the Levites and priests, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. We know this to be Andrew and John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. So first, uh, we're introduced again to John the Baptizer. Now, John the Baptist would have been equivalent of like an evangelist. But he's got these disciples following him, so he's really turned into a bit more of a pastor. He's like a pastor evangelist, and he's got these disciples. And what you're gonna see about John the Baptist is he just has one sermon, Behold the Lamb of God. That's his only sermon. Pay attention to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn your gaze upon Jesus. That's, That's his sermon. That's what he will proclaim for the rest of his life. And if I'm being honest, that's how it should be. That should be the only message of any pastor at any church at any place on this globe. Behold Jesus. That should always be the message of every pastor and evangelist or shepherd is that we would direct our gaze upon Jesus. If you're not part of our church and you're here because maybe your church is closed and you're here or maybe you are, even if you are part of the church, here's just a challenge I have for you. Um, What is your pastor's sermon about? what does he keep declaring? You're going to learn for the next 25 years that I prayerfully would be here teaching and sharing God's word that I only have the one sermon. I only have it. It just comes from different passages. I just just keep saying the same thing from different passages that by grace alone through faith alone are we saved. That's all I can come back to. But the role of a pastor is never to build disciples for himself. Never to build a following for himself, to build a reputation, to become an influencer. It should never be that. He is not the point. If at any point in our ministry here, I begin to shift into me being the point, schedule a meeting with me and Daryl and the elders and call me out. I have no business declaring myself. We need to be declaring Jesus. And pastor's message should never primarily be about politics or prosperity or religion or even their church. The pastor's message should continually be, behold the Lamb of God. Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. So this is John the baptizer, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 37. These two disciples, Andrew and John, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and he stayed with them on that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We've met John the Baptist and now we meet Andrew and we kind of meet John at this same moment. John, or Andrew and John had been led to Jesus by a pastor, John the Baptist, or an evangelist or a speaker. So it's like those of us in the room who have been compelled to follow Jesus, whether it's in a church service by the words of a pastor, it could be uh, at a camp when you were a student, it could have been some conference you went to, it could have been something you heard. You were led to Jesus by a pastor or an evangelist. If, if you can, would you stand if that was you? Would you stand? If you were led to Jesus through somebody who spoke, through a you can stand if that's you. I want, I want us to see something in the room, to please, please participate. If you can't stand, please raise your hand, right? Okay, look around, look around. Everybody look around. Those of us standing were led to Jesus because a pastor proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God. Okay, you can be seated. I want you to watch this. okay that's one way that Jesus calls disciples to himself is through the work of an evangelist or through the work of a pastor. Let's keep going into verse 41. Andrew finds his brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Well, now you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. So now we meet Simon Peter, a.k.a. Peter, a.k.a. Cephas. This is who he is, right? But Peter wasn't led to Jesus by a pastor or an evangelist. He was led to Jesus by the faithful witness of his brother. He was led to Jesus by the faithful witness of a family member. If that's you, would you stand up? You were led to Jesus by a brother, a sister, a mom, or a dad. You can stand. Somebody who said, behold, Jesus. This is me. My parents led me to Jesus. Look around the room. Look at all these people. Led to Jesus by the faithful witness of a family member. Mom, dad, brother, sister, look at, look at how important your role is in people's lives today. You can be seated. Jesus calls people through pastors and evangelists, and he calls them through the faithful witness of our families. We've said it before. God, it's not random. You've been godly Sovereignly ordained in the family that you are in, that you might know Jesus. So that's Peter 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So he's moving up from Bethany by the Jordan, up north the Jordan River to Galilee. And he found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. Well, Philip was from Bethsaida, the house of fish, the city of Andrew and Peter. That detail is important. Remember, John's not using a lot of words, every word matters. This is important. Why is that important? Because Philip was made aware of Jesus and Jesus' presence through his friends that he grew up with. He was made aware of Jesus by the faithful witness of a friend, Andrew and Peter in Bethsaida. Anybody this morning, you can stand up and say, I was led to Jesus. My eyes were opened to Jesus by the faithful witness of a friend. Go ahead and stand. If a friend opened your eyes to Jesus. Or you can raise your hand. Okay, look around. You can stay, stay up. Too. Look around. I, want, I need to just make this point for us as we move forward. As we grow as a church, my prayer is there'll be many more people standing who said, my friend led me to Jesus. My friend did that. You can go ahead and be seated. It was at a school function. It was at youth group. It was in a cubicle. That it was in a locker room. My prayer is that we are filled with people who have been led to Christ just by acquaintances, by someone who was a faithful friend to them. Okay. Jesus calls us to himself. He creates disciples through pastors and evangelists. He creates them through faithful witness of family and faithful witness of friends. That was Philip. Continue in verse 45. Now, Philip found Nathanael. So you see how this is progressing. And he said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, notice the difference here of how Philip is appealing to Nathanael. Philip followed Jesus because Jesus showed up in his town and said, follow me. But Philip isn't, it's not going to be that easy with Nathanael. We found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets, which tells us Nathanael must have been, he knew the uh, law and the prophets. This Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's going to appeal a bit differently. Verse 46, Philip, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So I know the Bible. I know the prophecies. The Messiah comes out of Bethlehem. Well, there's some um, little more hidden, minute prophecies that would tell us he's going to come through Nazareth. But he didn't know that. Philip said to him, I don't, man, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Just come and see. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why the dinosaurs don't live anymore. Just come on. Come see Jesus. I don't know. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, probably with Philip. And said to him, and Jesus said to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What he's saying is, oh, a religious one. One who is religious. Nathanael said to him, well, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Verse 49, Nathanael answered to him, Rabbi, you must be, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are high and lofty names of Jesus from the Old Testament. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, well, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's what's interesting about Nathaniel, Philip, uh, all Philip could say was come and see, right? Nathaniel didn't say, oh great, where is he? What it took for Nathaniel to follow Jesus was a divine encounter with Jesus. Do you see how hard Philip is trying with Nathaniel? Hey man, He's he's the one Moses like I'm trying to speak your language and I'm trying to use my apologetics and try to convince you and this is how and this is how and, and he's like ah uh, Nazareth probably not so just come and see for yourself and then Jesus says I saw you under the fig tree and Nathanael's like oh I can't believe it's you and Philip's like I should have started I should have led with he saw you under the fig tree and then we would have had a better conversation but it wasn't the words of Philip It was a divine encounter with Jesus that led him to following Jesus. Anybody stand up this morning would say, "No, I just there was I needed an encounter with Jesus. A friend didn't convince me. There was there was a moment, whether it was in grief or success, where Jesus proved himself to me." Anybody would stand up and say, "It was just a simple divine encounter with Jesus." It happens. It happens. You can say this is good. Look around. This is a real thing that happens. This isn't just made up. Sometimes Jesus just makes himself known. You can be seated. Thank you. You see that? So here's here's the thing. Jesus is calling disciples to himself. He'll do it through a pastor and evangelist. He'll do it through family. He'll do it through friends. And sometimes he just shows up and makes himself known. All of us are no less disciples than anybody else. We bring no extra value to the church or to the conversation. All right. Last time we'll go back through and we'll go through quickly. Verse 35, the next day again, anybody else want to say it out loud or just me? The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. As he looked at Jesus, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him. Because it's about the 10th hour. So now notice what's happening. Uh, Peter or Andrew and John call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. And I've grown up in church, so I've heard it said a lot that, well, we need more than just a rabbi. Sure we do. We need more than just a teacher. Absolutely. But I think we have a grave misunderstanding of what rabbi actually means in this culture. A rabbi isn't just a math teacher. A rabbi isn't just uh, someone who teaches religion. A rabbi is someone who gives his life to instructing those who have followed him. There's an old Jewish saying that when you truly followed someone, when you followed a teacher or a rabbi, that you were so close to him, you were covered in the dust of your rabbi. The invitation, when Jesus says, or when they call him a rabbi, what they're saying is, you're someone that we can follow closely because you want us around. You are near to us. We can be near to you. Where are you staying? That's a question you would ask a rabbi. We're going to go stay with you. We want to be close to you. For some of us this morning, um, Jesus is that. He is the first person who would say, come be close to me. What I've noticed over the past few months as I've watched the political landscape of our country is that we are desperate to follow someone. Like we're so desperate for a rabbi that will follow anyone who seems to have influence. Like if you're paying attention to celebrities and athletes and politicians and those with wealth and success, Notice how quickly you are to find yourself under their yoke, under their tutelage, being covered in the dust of that rabbi. And when you follow certain rabbis, you are covered by their dust. You start to become like them. Our culture as people, we are desperate to be led in a way that we are loved. And so we will jump on anything that gives us hope. We'll follow anything or anyone that gives us hope. And so when John and Andrew called Jesus rabbi, what they're saying is, I'm done following other things. Now it's you, you. And Jesus uses rabbinical language, come and you will see. Come journey with me. Come walk with me. Some of us this morning, um, we followed Jesus because he is that for us. He has invited us in. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We found the anointed one, which means Christ. Some of us are looking for a rabbi and Jesus is that. And some of us are looking for a rescuer and Jesus is also that. Peter isn't looking for a rabbi, he's looking for the anointed one. He's looking for a rescuer. And Jesus is that too. He can be our rabbi and he can be our Messiah 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then there are some of us who are just primed. All we need is for someone to show up and point out Jesus. That's all we need. That's all we need. There are people in your offices at work, around your conference table, I'm sitting in your classrooms who just need someone to say, come and see. 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, we'll come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Um, This is important. This is probably not referring to a literal fig tree. Micah 4 and other Old Testament prophets talk about uh, what it means to seek the Lord to study his word, and to spend time specifically in prayer. And they would call that being under the fig tree. When you would devote a time or a place to the study of God's word and seeking him in prayer, particularly seeking him and asking for the Messiah, seeking the Messiah in the Old Testament, that would be called, the Jewish idiom is, you would be placing yourself under the fig tree. The fig tree would have been a place of shade and solace, <clears throat> So what we know about Nathaniel is he is well-studied and he has devoted himself to this. So at the age of 13, when a rabbi said, you're not good enough, he said, I'll show you. And he begins to study. But the problem for him is he had gotten so immersed in his study that he was missing Jesus in his midst. And so when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, it's not that he saw him, it's that he was present when Nathaniel was praying, oh, I heard the words you said. I was there when you studied. I saw you. I was with you there. He says, behold, an Israelite, there is no deceit. So what they would have been studying, they would have started with Jacob in Genesis 27. And the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name means deceitful one or conniving so when Jesus says, hey, it's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no Jacob, would oh, to God his attention, he said, I saw you under the fig tree, which is why Nathanael answers in verse 49, oh, it's you, you're the one I've been praying to, you're the one I've been, I've been seeking. But go down to verse 51, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, This is a reference to Genesis 28, when Jacob runs from his father because he has stolen the birthright from Esau, he's running from Esau, he's out in the wilderness, and God gives him a dream, gives him a vision. And Jacob has a vision that we call Jacob's ladder. And Jacob saw a vision in a dream of a ladder from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. Scholars would tell you that was one of the first messianic prophecies. That there is a Messiah coming. And so when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to open heaven for you, and you're going to realize that thing you were just studying, the thing that I saw you doing, I am him. I am the ladder to heaven. I'm the only way. I am the one on whom the angels will ascend and descend. See, Nathaniel had studied so much that he almost missed him. He became so religious that he became skeptical of the Messiah. And there's some of us in the room uh, today in the same way. You'll never be moved by apologetics or an argument. You'll never be moved by a preacher. You'll never be moved by the words of a friend. You'll never be moved by the words of a faithful family member. You will only be moved by the presence of God in your life. Because you know all the reasons why Jesus isn't that. But Jesus says the same thing to you. Well, just come and see. Come and see. I guess over time it'll prove whether or not I'm the Messiah or not. Why don't you just come and see? That invitation that Jesus extends is the same to each and every one of us today. Come and see. It's invitation before instruction. There's some of us this morning who need to hear those words from Jesus or hear them from a family member or a friend. Come and see. I don't know. Like I, I don't know why bad things happen to good people. And I don't know why if Jesus, if God is good, why there's still evil on the earth. I don't, I don't know, but I just I come and see. Come and see. Some of us need to hear it, but I think the majority of us this morning, we need to begin to say it again. We need to say it to the people around the conference table and sharing a cubicle and across the desk from you or across the screen from you. We need to begin to say these words, come and see. We need to stop trying to argue with people, say, I don't just come and see. Come and see. I can't convince you, but just would you come and and see. Some of us need to respond to it, and some of us this morning, we need to offer it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as Joel comes out, and we'll wrap up this morning. I just wonder, as we studied this morning, as Jesus um, calls us to himself in a number of different ways, that the truth is that sometimes he calls us through the words of a pastor. He calls us through a church service. We've walked the aisle, we've signed a card, and I'm not gonna... uh, Reject those things. Is there anyone this morning who would say, no, it's in this moment today. I, I want to begin to follow Jesus. You would raise your hand and say, today is the day for me. I want to know what salvation is. I want to follow Jesus today. I've heard it from the stage. I've heard it from scripture. I want to follow Jesus. How many of us this morning, though, would say, you know what, I, I've heard it and I've begun doing it. I just, I've stopped saying it. I've stopped telling my wife or my kids, come and see this Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. And you've opted for instruction instead of invitation. Hey, moms and dads, listen, um, your kids will not come to Jesus through your instruction. They will come to Jesus through your invitation. Are you a living invitation for them? Is there safe places in your home for them to wrestle and have questions and want to know? Anyone here this morning, you'd raise your hand and say, No, would you pray for me that I would be better at saying, Come and see? You raise your hand. I've got, I've got friends, I've got family members who need Jesus and I've been bad about it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Father, we come to you this morning um, asking for your help and through your power. It's in your, in your, the name of Jesus is where we find salvation. And so we've, uh, we need to get back to that, calling people to you. So, God, make us a people who would say, Come and see. And God, that's disruptive because it means we put people around our table that maybe we wouldn't invite. It means we have people in our backyard, in our front yard, and at barbecues that maybe we wouldn't normally. God, would you give us courage to say, I I mean, I don't know, just come and see. Come sit at my table. Come have conversation. Come to church. Uh, May we be a force for the gospel in this area, and in our workplaces, and in our schools, and in the gas stations, and at Publix, and wherever it is, God, that our message would be behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.